My name is Trinidad Raj Molina Khatun III, Trinidad Raj for short. I'm Bengali, Mexican-American. Uh, liberation theology themes uh, often has to do with marginalized people. So I know a lot about that because how many Bengali and Mexican-Americans have you ever heard of? <laughs> I know three, me and my sister <laughs> and a cousin. <laughs> What's the deal of airline? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I'm actually only doing, I'm really only doing the intro tonight. The main crux for the night is going to be my friend Samantha's testimony. She's something I've accompanied for a while, but now she really is a leader in her own right in the immigration work. Um, I'm good at the philosophy, the big idea guy, you know, but I also did a lot of the action uh, or a lot of it. But today I'm really just giving the reflection component. So um, you heard a little bit about some of the work I've done before. A lot of it, it's very hard work. I really like have sacrificed a lot to do that work. And that's a key thing that I like um, that liberation theology focuses on, that walking with people, that sense of accompaniment, which is a word that comes up a lot in that school of theology, it's, it touches on a transcendent experience, which means you sacrifice something of yourself for this. So it's, it's a very deep thing. And it's hard to pin down why that is, but it, it is. Um, now I got to be. I want to give uh, in full disclosure. I'm technically not a liberation theologian, but, but I really. But I've studied in El Salvador with liberation theologians when I studied the, the people. Like that's Latin America is really where it started, and people lived through civil wars, and people were dying everywhere, and so that's why theologians had to figure out ways to encounter how do we deal with this oppression. And, and describe our experience of these hard times. So those are the people who taught me. I've learned from them. And it really shook my world to learn from them. Uh, I would say technically what I really love is Latin American theology, and just which is just, that's the general theology of the region. And then liberation theology is one thing that falls under the umbrella term, but they're not always exactly the same. But the key things they have in common, like accompaniment comes up a lot, right? And walking with people and caring for, Yes, caring for the spiritual needs, but then the sense if you really care for someone's spiritual needs, doesn't that mean you also care about how they're being oppressed by injustice, right? It, it would seem like you have to care about both. So that's the similarity, right? Um, now I'm going to quote a liberation theologian. <laughs> okay. um, so let's see. Ignacio Eacria, has anyone heard of him? Oh, this is great. Okay, so... There, in El Salvador, there was a lot of martyrs during this time because a lot of liberation theology came because everyone's getting killed everywhere. So no one was exempt. Like there's a lot of governments at the time were just corrupt. If you seemed like you had any hint of a leftist idea, as in, and that could be considered a priest just going to do a Bible study in a village, could be considered a leftist idea, and you could be declared a communist and you get killed. And it was that dangerous of a time. People were being disappeared everywhere throughout the region. Um, so if you wanted to be a real Christian at the time, it was not easy. You had to say what was wrong. And so some people decided to stand up and say what was wrong about all of that. Ignacio was one of them, and as the Salvadoran Civil War was getting worse, he could have left. He was technically a foreign missionary. He could have left, but he chose to stay, and the other Jesuits um, chose to stay because these were their people now, the Salvadoran people. So they knew speaking openly against the government means what? You get killed. So they knew it was going to happen, but he did, they did it anyway. So he was really a martyr. Um, but he was, um, he was also a philosopher and a theologian. He had a lot of writings. Um, not a ton of it has been translated into English because just not a lot of people know about just the Salvadoran thinkers in general. It's a small country. But his ideas were very powerful and unique. I would recommend, you know, consider looking him up sometime if you can find any of his. There might be a few small books of it. He wrote a lot. He wrote... In big words, it's hard to translate them. I've tried, so I'm going to give what I can for the day. So he had the sense of his dissertation was called La Filosofía de la Realidad Histórica, Philosophy of the Historical Reality. And I met, uh, I was at the university, the university where he lived at was where he was killed. The government came to the campus and killed him. So I met Jesuits there who knew him. They told me this was his most important work was this dissertation. So I got, I got a copy, and I brought it back here a long time ago. So philosophy of the historical reality. What that means, if I could try to summarize it, for, he, for him, philosophy was, he was a little different than a lot of philosophers 
the philosophical act for him was the purpose of it is, is to transform the world. Um, and praxis is reflection and action upon the world to transform the world. So philosophy is and praxis are all this reflection and action thing on the world. And in his mind, his history was like this culmination culminating to something. And it's, that's historical reality, right? Your, your or our historical reality was what he would reflect on. And all of history is in a process, it's in a process of change, it's always in flux. And we are the actors who can try to change it by reflecting and acting upon it. And the purpose of it is, in his mind, is, is to create new, a new world where more people have the possibility for liberation from all forms of oppression. So this was his big way of thinking. And what's tricky, um, now a lot of people might think that sounds pretty similar, just like a Marxist historical dialectic. Um, and obviously there's a similarity there. But he really was a Catholic priest, so he was a very spiritual person. So when he's thinking about culminating history, you can kind of sense what does he think history is culminating to, right? So like a Christian eschatology. Um, but in that, within that, he had this, so he had the transcendent vision, but he really cared about the imminent needs of people, So because he, he was a liberation theologian, right? So he was really unique because he talked about biology, and philosophers don't normally talk about biology, if you think about that for a second. Um, when he thought about reflecting on historical reality, it wasn't just this collection of facts in a history book. He thought about all those actors who helped change history. They were, they were biological. And obviously, he's a spiritual person, but he also really appreciated that people were biological, and he thought you had to take that seriously when you thought about how things change. And one example would be um, if you think about um, if you're going to accompany someone who's being, who institutions are doing violence to someone, you want to accompany them, okay, and that person is pregnant. That's going to change the way that you accompany them. They have certain needs, right? They interact with the world a little differently. So the biology is part of it. So he would, just, he would challenge people to think about those things. Okay, so now we get to the theme, how institutions do violence. Okay, Samantha's talk is one of the most examples uh, of how that happens. She's black, she's an immigrant, she's a single mother. Uh, many institutions here locally have conspired to try to make her life horrible. ICE, um, Clay County, Family Court, Municipal Court, Immigration Court, and it's been a hell of a time the past few years. When I was talking to her about it, we realized one of the themes was what helped counter that was all the people who accompanied her during that time as she kind of grew herself as a leader. And accompaniment, we realize, actually is a counter to how institutions do violence to people. And it's very interesting how that works. And I've never been able to put my thumb on it. My friend Raisa is here. She and I have done a lot of accompaniment, especially in immigration. And it's hard to describe what exactly happens when you're accompanying people. It's not, it doesn't always sound as exciting as organizing. I've done a lot of organizing. But it's a slightly different work. Whenever we try to train people how to do it, it's hard because you can't tell people, you need a certain kind of person who's really willing to make personal sacrifices if they're going to be good at accompaniment, and it's hard to find those people sometimes. It's, it's, it really becomes a transcendent work, and I think when you hear Samantha's story, you'll kind of start seeing why that is. So if you think about it, the word accompaniment, so the root of it is accompaniment, pan, break bread. Um, so it literally means breaking bread with someone or to share bread with someone. That's what accompaniment means. And um, so actually it's kind of Christian imagery. It's, like, it's almost like a Eucharistic theology to do accompaniment. So I want to share a quote here from Romero. Romero was one of the Salvadoran martyrs. Um, and he, uh, he spoke against this very corrupt government every day for the last three years of his life until they killed him. The government that was killing tons of people. And this gives a sense of the flavor of like Latin American. He was more of Latin American theology Ignacio de Correa was more liberation theology, but obviously there's so much similarity about accompaniment. So this is his Advent quote, and you can see the way he talked about Christianity, it almost just feels different from like how most people interact with the world. So in 1978, his homily said, Advent should admonish us to discover in each brother or sister we greet, in each friend whose hand we shake, in each beggar who asks for bread, in each worker who wants to use the right to join a union, and each peasant who looks for work in the coffee groves, the face of Christ. 
then it would not be possible to rob them, to cheat them, to deny them the rights. They are Christ, and whatever is done to them is done to Christ. That is what Advent is, Christ living among us. And that quote really captures the sense of what does it mean to accompany people? There's this kind of, it's a transcendent experience. It touches us on a very Christian reality, if that makes sense. So that, so here we got the discussion questions, um, and we're going to go do our first set of questions. Um, it's more important that everyone at your table gets a chance to be heard than it is to get through all the questions. If you can do both, it's great, but don't feel like you have to. Um, the first question is, um, at this time, how are you, what institutions are you aware of that do violence or oppress people? Anything you can think of. And the only thing I ask is no cliche answers, because I'm not a cliche person. I want, so like, don't just say like something just blanket, like, okay, church oppresses women, military oppresses people by killing, but no, get more specific. Like, what is your tension with the institution that you're criticizing? Get a specific example. Um, so think of the institutions you know of that do violence or oppress people. And then, what does it mean, second question, what does it mean to reflect on our historical reality here, where we are now, to be able to change and transform those forms of oppression or violence? What does it mean to reflect on our historical reality, which is also based in our biology, to change it? And the third question is, as best as within your understanding at this time, how can accompaniment, what is, how can accompaniment counter that violence? And the oppression. Okay, I think uh, we'll come together for a few comments. I don't think we have time for to hear from every table for this one, but we should for the second set. So maybe two or three um, thoughts, summarizing thoughts from your table. Um, we talked about. School access um, and um, the, the forms of oppression that keep kids uh, either out of good schools or districts with lots of money or advanced classes. Um, and we also talked about, uh, or at least I, I talked a lot about Kevin Strickland and uh, the, uh, the the system in the, the state of Missouri that not only kept him wrongfully imprisoned for 43 years but won't compensate him um, and how that uh, that response and that admission of, of wrongdoing now falls to everyday individual people instead of a system that needs to atone. Um, I'll just share a little bit about what I said uh, regarding the third piece of how can the worker of a company counter the violence and corrupt institutions and uh, I mean, I, you know, I did a little bit of a component with air, and it's um, that accountability that accompaniment provides, that emotional support. Um, I had the chance to walk some workers back at the Texas 15 as well, and I think like when you come in and there's a group of people saying to a manager, you're not going to do retaliation in the verbal, you're not going to do retaliation, there's power in that, and power in that community. Um, it was also obviously transformational for me, learning a lot more about my privileges and I think we have time for one more if anyone wants to share. Um, we talked a lot about um, financial institutions um, and just how they, you know, aside from the big, really scary things like, uh, you know, foreclosing on people's houses and stuff like that, like the ways that, just like normally banks will like nickel and dime people, like by, um, overdraft fees and stuff like that or um, uh, an example from my life was like turn, they turned off like my mobile deposit <coughs> um, so that like now I can't just cash checks from my phone and I'm not saying like I'm oppressed but like if I had mobility issues mm -hmm. or something like that or worked like a really weird schedule like if I couldn't make it into the bank anymore you know that would be really difficult for me. I like um there's very creative examples all across the board there, so I would, I'd like to hear those. Um, and I think the questions will carry over to the second set of questions where we might be able to go even deeper. So after you hear Samantha's testimony. So Samantha here, um, my funny story is the way I met Samantha was uh, summer 2019. The um, 
bond work that AIR does, we had a bond fund to help some people get out of ICE detention, which is just at the county jails, they, they contract together. And I should try to have work balance that would not have the line, the airline that connects to my phone turn on on the weekends, but I forgot <laughs> to turn it off. Uh, <laughs> and it was like a Saturday night in like July 2019, I think. And I don't know why, I just, someone called and I was like, oh, I shouldn't answer, I need work-life balance, but I, I answered it. <laughs> and it was uh, Samantha's relative, and I had no idea who Samantha was, but um, they're telling me about the situation. I got all the information we needed, to, and then I, back then I didn't know, I still know Samantha today. <laughs> I get so many calls, but it was great. I'm very happy about that, though. She's a good friend. Okay, hi. <laughs> How's everyone doing tonight? Good. Well, I um, I have squirrel brain, so if anyone knows what that is, yeah, I have squirrel brain. So I wrote a little bit, um, but I will introduce myself. My name's Maria Samantha Mungai. Technically Samantha Mungai, but when I did all my stuff for DACA, they assumed Maria was my first name, Samantha was my middle name, <laughs> and the rest is history. So now I have to explain that. Um, and I was raised in Kenya, Africa. I moved here in 2004, and I came to reunite with my mom. She came here before me in 1999. Um, so I was a giddy little child, getting on a plane, walked to the bathroom about 100 times because it was so cool, um, <laughs> and finally got to the United States. Um, I went to elementary school, middle school, and high school here. Graduated from good old Olathe School District. <laughs> Um, for me, I did not find out I was an immigrant, I guess you would say, or a DACA recipient, or qualified as a DACA recipient until I was a junior in high school. So that's when I finally found out um, exactly what my status here was. Um, that was due to me getting into college classes and then asking more questions and then finding out I couldn't get those classes. <laughs> so um, that's kind of when I found out what was kind of going on with my situation. Fast forward, I graduated high school at 17. Um, that summer I turned 18 and luckily Barack Obama was elected, came up with the DREAM Act. I was racking my brain. I was like, I don't want to <laughs> do anything bad, but how do I navigate? How do I get money? Um, so that kind of saved me a lot. I was able to apply. Um, you know, they run your fingerprints through the FBI database. You make sure you're all good to go and say, hey, all right, here's two years worth of work visa. Here's your social driver's license. You're good to go. So first job, La Petite teacher. <laughs> I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> and it wasn't the kids. <laughs> um, and then my second job was Quest Diagnostics. So I did lab work for a while, found out that I actually really liked that. Um, and then fast forward now, I'm in property management, so really like that as well because I like interacting with people, even though it doesn't seem like it because I don't talk much <laughs> if you meet me outside of here. Um, I am a mom, so my situation in 2019 is what led me into ICE detention because I had a custody battle against Clay County. So juvenile officer. Um, a lot of people think, you know, when you're versing the state, it's usually children's division that gets to have a say, and that's who kind of navigates your case. I came to find out that's not the case. They sit in, they create a team, there's council workers, there's everyone, but apparently whatever the juvenile officer says, that's what goes. Um, and I found that out the hard way. So specifically my juvenile officer, um, a little bit of background, it was my daughter. And um, one day we moved to Missouri, Clay County, um, District Gladstone. Still trying to figure this out. Gladstone, but somehow Clay County got jurisdiction. So that's still weird to me. I still haven't put it together. But one night I called everyone. I was like, okay, I had already gotten the eviction notice. We had just gotten on our feet and then back down again. Um, I called everyone. I was like, look, I need somebody to watch my daughter. So I can go to work so we don't get evicted, right? You don't want to end up in another bad situation, just left a horrible relationship. And so everyone's like, you can move to Missouri, we're in Johnson County, that's a little far, or I'm busy, or I already had plans, sorry I can't, just the normal, the usual. Not knowing how desperate I was <laughs> to make money that night, I was just like, look, I either make this decision, she sleeps, she was four, she sleeps through the night, um, I'm gonna, go, I get off at two, she'll still be asleep. That's my thought process, right? 
Or, you know, I stay home, but then we end up back on the street <laughs> the next day. So what do I do? Made a horrible decision, which I regret to this day. Um, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to work. She'll, she always sleeps through the night. Waited a little bit. So apparently this time, um, whenever I went to close the door, she heard me and she woke up, but I had already left. So I'm guessing it was like a few minutes after she walked right across the hall to the neighbor and said, hey, my mommy's at work. Um, instead of them trying to find any contact information, you know, I don't blame them for what they did, but um, they called the cops. And instead of the cops waiting, um, they decided to immediately take her into foster care. Never got my daughter back. Came to find out apparently that wasn't the case. I'm supposed to at least get her back while I go through the steps, you know? Um, but no, I came home from work, door wide open, darkness so obviously go out into straight freak out mode um searching my whole entire apartment neighbors didn't even come out to tell me what happened still to this day i've never seen them um and i saw a piece of paper on the island said your daughter's been taken in the foster care system call this number in the morning to find out what you need to do next so as you can imagine i cried all night woke up didn't even wake up i didn't go to sleep called them in the morning um Heather Kendall is who I ended up speaking to, and at that time it was Whitney Neal, um, a caseworker. They explained, oh, they made it seem very easy. They're like, oh, you just need to fill out this paperwork and then do like these three steps and then you'll have your daughter back, right? I'm like, okay, oh my God, I'm really sorry. I kept apologizing, apologizing. They're like, well, we're gonna come meet you at your house. Me thinking they're coming with my daughter, they just come them too. And um, they talked to me, I'm in my robe, I'm a hot mess at this time. And I realized that the juvenile officer, Heather Kendall, she's kind of looking me up and down. I'm like, like in my head, I'm like, I know I look a mess right now. I'm sorry, like my daughter's gone. I don't know what you expect me to look like. But then the caseworker, she was pretty nice. Um, so I was like, okay, what do I need to do? They got the steps, the family assessment map, if anyone's familiar um, with the system. And so at this point, still haven't seen her. They're like, oh, well, you're gonna get one hour visits every week with her. So for me going from four years as a single mom, literally I co-sleep with her, to one hour visits a week, um, that's not enough for me. I mean, it's not. And so I'm like, okay, is, can I get more? Do I get weekends? I, I have no clue. This is the first time I'm going through. Like, I don't know how to navigate this. And they're like, well, no, it's so easy. Like, we'll do this a couple of times. You'll go through the goals we have on the family assessment map. So at this time, they wanted me, mind you, keep in mind that the reason we end up in this situation is financial, childcare, housing. The resources they offer me is drug assessment, alcohol assessment, mental health assessment, neither of the others that actually caused the situation in the first place. So I end up basically taking the drug test. Um, the first one was, I think they tried to have me go that day. Didn't, I ended up missing it. The second one I ended up going, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, count on all of them negative. I've never done drugs, I'm completely scared of them. I was that honest with them. And they're like, oh, well, do you drink alcohol? I'm like, yeah, I have a glass of wine like any normal person. And then they go into, well, we need you to take a mental health assessment. And so they didn't say whether it was court ordered, whether it was not, so then I ended up getting stuck on that one. And every time the caseworker would say, look, I'm gonna go ask the team, I would never get a reply back. Fast forward, I'm still doing one hour visits. Um, I found out I'm pregnant with my son Roman, which y'all saw, saw him during this situation. And I ended up in the hospital with him for three weeks with hyperemesis. Um, if anyone's not familiar, that's just when you throw up air, like you could breathe it and just throw up. <laughs> it's a, a very severe form of um, nausea, morning sickness. And so during this time in the hospital, I'm asking to like reschedule my visits. Like, I'm so sorry, like I'm literally admitted into the hospital. Can I reschedule? No, you can't reschedule. Fast forward, I um, start up my visits with her again after I get out of the hospital. Foster parents have to take a vacation. So no, you don't get a visit and they'll reschedule whenever they're ready. So I'm like, okay, that was the first issue I had. And then the second issue is there was no progress. Even though I'm taking all the drug tests they're asking me to take, even though I'm paying the child support that they're asking me to pay, even though at this point I had gotten a job as a phlebotomist, 
I had moved back to Johnson County, got an apartment in Oakland Park, Kansas. I had started, um, um, what was it called, car payments on a 2013 Ford Fusion. Like I had everything that they were asking to be stable, right? And at this time, keep in mind, I'm also pregnant. So I'm doing everything they're asking me to do to the best of my ability, but there's no progress on their end. I'm still at one hour visits. At the point of where I get to three hour visits with a um, aide, I think is what they call, so it's no longer with a caseworker. The first visit, we have it, a couple days later, they call me, sorry, your aide's been pulled. No rhyme, no reason. I finally call the caseworker, I ask her, do you know why? She says, oh, well, they said that you watched a scary movie with your daughter at the library. I don't watch scary movies. I still had it on my Netflix queue. We watched Despicable Me. So I'm like, that makes no sense. Doesn't matter. Still get my aid pulled. Go back to one hour visits. So fast forward. <laughs> still at one hour visits. Now it's moved to the North Kansas City Library. I ended up having um, knee surgery. Mind you, they during this time, and now that I look back on it, it's perfectly planned. Um, I ended up, my knee, I have what is called knee subluxation. So it went from, oh, my knee just gave out and popped back into place to where I would turn in my sleep and it would completely dislocate it and not go back. So I had to have knee surgery. And um, at this time, I was still doing my visits. I was wearing a brace to my visit and everything. Um, I had had Roman. Um, Roman was coming to visits with me, seeing his sister. I'd bring her food. On the family assessment maps, they're stating visits are going well. They're appropriate. She's bringing her food. She runs to her. But then when we go to court, it's, oh, well, she's not making any progress. And I'm like, but the family assessment, we just, I just saw you this last week. Like, what do you mean there's no progress being made? Then, as that's not adding up, I have my knee surgery 2018 on Halloween day. Um, I let them know about that. And they're like, okay, well, since you can't make visits, can you send email letters? I'm like, okay, yeah, I can do that because I know I'm going to be on bed rest. And so I'm sending email letters, no replies, nothing. I'm not even getting like, yeah, we're reading them to her or anything like that. Um, I get told that she's getting moved from her first foster home placement to her second one because they suggest that she needs to be with a family that's a mom and a dad but no other kids. Didn't really add up to me because, mind you, Aubrey's never had any issues with anyone. She's never been like a kid to like act out like like crazy or anything like that, you know? Um, so the issues that they stated she was having at the first foster home, to which I had a lot of questions about, is stealing food out of the trash can. She's never done that. Um, I tried to ask if they were feeding her enough. I got the answer of, yeah, she's just acting out. Um, wetting the bed. She'd been potty trained, never wet the bed, never had an accident. Having nightmares. Um, and when I asked, do you think this trauma is coming from anywhere else, they would say, oh, no, we have to have her see a therapist because it has to do maybe with that night. So they would try to, like, roundhouse it back to me. Um, then when I had my surgery, she got moved while I was on bed rest and I wasn't getting visits at that time. So she got moved. Fast forward, right after she gets moved, we get told that we're going to have a TPR hearing. So it went to children's division is going to recommend on the family assessment map it says this clear as day it's written down children's division is going to recommend reunification after that family assessment map is made all of a sudden the next move is tpr so the question is how do you go from children's division saying that they're going to make a suggestion to reunify but then the juvenile office specifically heather kendall goes talks to their lawyer and says we need to file for tpr they did um, they offered me a lawyer who I had met at the beginning of this case. His name was Paymon Aramshu. And that's the only person I could think of. And I was like, oh, um, I, this is who I'm going to have represent me. I don't have the money right now. So when I sent that email to Heather Kendall, it should have been a red flag at this time because everything else I had asked her for, she had said no, she had turned down and never got an answer to. She was more than happy to provide me with his information. So start the GPR proceedings sit in court. They say they compare my bond to my daughter to an aunt visiting a niece or nephew or a friend visiting a child. Um, I noticed when I restarted my visits back up with her during these TPR proceedings that she was very distant from me, but she started calling the new foster placement mom and dad. They told me I can't say anything on that. 
I can't bring it up to her. She would sometimes ask me when am I coming home. I was told I can't speak to her about that because it's a loaded subject. Um, <laughs> they then started having a therapist that they suggested sitting on our visits as well, to which then during the end of the TPR, this therapist said, I would suggest that she wouldn't be reunified back with mom. Which, mind you, she never had a session with just me and Aubrey. It was always she would sit in on the visits, and then they would discuss their own situation whenever you know they would have their team meetings. But during FST meetings, I would ask like, does she need anything? Because the like first foster home, she was gracious enough to like FaceTime me, ask me what products to use in her hair, like you know, allow me to go to doctor's appointments, to be present, get her school supply clothes, things like that. Second placement was weird. Anytime I asked if she needed anything, no, we're fine. Anytime I asked, oh, how's she doing? Oh, she's good. And then FSD meeting, when she found out that, because at this point my cousins got involved and they try to get um, placement of kinship, which is usually in the court, they should place with kinship before anybody else. And when that happened, we, have an FS, we had an FST meeting where the foster mom at the time who she got moved to started crying and said, and I quote, <laughs> I'm losing faith in the system because this is not what I expected. Which to me in that moment, that was a complete red flag because fostering is supposed to be temporary. You know the child is gonna get reunified with the parent. So I didn't understand why she was crying. And so I just kind of stared at her. And then she went on to say, I've just really gone, grown attached to Aubrey. And my thought at that time I just looked at her and in my head, I never said anything. I barely ever spoke up at these meetings to which I regret to this day because I didn't want to be seen as the angry, you know, parent. And now it's like, oh, look, she's angry. That's another thing. <laughs> um, so she, I literally stared at her and I was like, you're crying because you got attached to my kid after two months. I held her in my stomach for nine months, gave birth to her. Her dad was never around, so all four years, just me and her, I'm all she knew. She gets taken away, and I made her a promise I'm gonna fight for her, and you're crying, right? Like, you're hurt, because come to find out later, they wanted to adopt her. She's white. So, you know, it's, it's, it started adding up towards the end for me. And this is why nowadays I tell people, because yet again, they're doing it again with another mom right now, um, but she was able to, sounds so bad, catch it early. They tried to offer her the same lawyer. They took her through the same exact ho hoops. They let me keep Roman, but if I'm in fit, I'm in fit, right? So they let me keep my three-year-old now, that he's three and happy and healthy, but took away a child from me. They're letting her keep her 16-year-old, and they're keeping her 13-year-old. And they said there's no rhyme or reason as to why they take kids away and keep kids or reunify. When it's supposed to be, this is what you do. You show us that this is not a pattern. You show that you can, you know, correct your mistake because it is a mistake. And at, at the end of the day, like, how sorry do we have to be? Like, at the end of the day, like, the judge compared the TPR to the death penalty. A couple of months back, I was sitting on the toilet because I still go on social media because they did end up adopting her. They terminated my rights. I took it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Paymon, who was gracious enough to represent me, even though I told him not to file my Supreme Court because I knew that was my last chance, he filed it both with um, the appeal. To this day, he will not answer my phone calls. He will not answer the Kansas City Star's phone calls. He will not answer to what he did, but apparently come to find out from this lady that is happening to now, he got paid $35,000 last year to represent the same cases, to take them pro bono, in his words, for free. Um, I didn't make the connection with him until I looked at his social media and saw he was friends with the juvenile officer that was on my case, but no one else in the division, because I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt that it was just a professional relationship that he had. Um, I can't call my daughter. I tried during the like, beginning of COVID because she has asthma to just check on her because I literally Googled this lady's number. <laughs> I mean, for God's sake, it's really not high to find her. She works for the Ronald McDonald House. Um, you know, I 
called and I said, hey, um, I just want to see how Aubrey's doing. She said, how'd you get my number? I said, well, I looked you up. She said, I can't talk to you, click. Nothing, so right now I'm stuck basically looking through social media, hoping, up, hoping that they mess up and I can see a, a picture of my daughter and wait until she's, what, 18 to see that I'm still fighting, that I'm still here trying because my worst fear is for her to think I don't love her and I'm not trying. But back to Heather Kendall, that juvenile officer, <laughs> she tried so hard when she couldn't say, oh, this person's a drug addict because I passed every drug test. When she couldn't paint that picture, when she couldn't paint the alcoholism picture, when she couldn't paint the, oh, criminal picture, mind you, she did try to put a criminal charge on the situation in the Kansas City, um, I think it's the Kansas City, the Jackson County Courthouse, I think is where they have their criminal proceedings. That was dropped. So how is it that a, a criminal side of this situation gets dropped, but on the family court side, you're given what is equivalent to the death penalty. That didn't also make sense to me. But another way to where she tried to pull is um, finding a ticket, mind you this is 2019, so she found a ticket from 2017 from an insurance ticket where I had totaled that car, canceled that insurance, but they were sending the notifications to an old address that me and my mom lived in in Lenexa, which resulted in a bench warrant, right? So she said, and I'm assuming in her head, this is her ticket. This is how she wins this case. This is how she terminates my rights because I'll be deported is what I'm assuming she was thinking. So during one of our TPR court hearings, because we had three, um, after hearing everything that they had to say in court, I'm getting up to leave and she says, oh, I'm sorry, you can't leave. This officer has to take you. I said, for what? And she goes, well, you have a bench warrant out of Grandview for an insurance ticket. I didn't say anything because she had already tried it before and I knew it was coming because I kind of at this point had started catching on to her antics. Handed my mom my purse, um, told my family members where I was going, what was happening. And I thought at this point she's just trying to get me arrested, right? And so they put me in handcuffs. I remember that day I was wearing a dress and some wedges and they walked me from the family courtroom across the street, across the parking lot to the Clay County main uh, courthouse, got me into the detention center there, held me, like, and took me, and then held me and transferred me to Grandview, got to Grandview, and the, I remember the sheriff there, him and I uh, were talking because he found out that I had taken my correctional officer test in Jackson County and passed, so he was like, oh, you know, joking around, you should come work here, blah, 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 and I was not in the mood, clearly. and. Um, didn't even see that judge. I woke up the next day to a piece of paper that said, pay a $175 fine, no points to your driver's license, there's really no need for you to be here, you're good to go. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna leave, right? And he goes, no, no one told you? I said, no one told me what? He goes, you can't leave, you have an ice hold. So I remember when I had my knee surgery, I was working as a phlebotomist. That year, I was due to renew my DACA. And HR knew about it. They called me and they said, hey, you're on short-term disability. You know, you're not working right now. We know it takes an amount of money, $825 to be exact. So renew. So when you get back to work, save that money, and then you can renew your paperwork. So my job was okay with it. I didn't think twice about it, right? So when <laughs> I put two and two together, Heather Kendall thought, oh, insurance ticket. We know ICE usually looks into the system about anyone that's arrested that might not be a citizen. She gets deported, we win the case, we don't even have to fight it that hard. That was just a guess until I got the email that she had sent to the whole entire team to prove my theory is that's what her end goal was. Um, I ended up getting transported. The same two ICE officers that you see in the video where they busted out the man's um, window, those same two guys are the same two guys that I ended up talking to in that Grandview jail. Um, they're like, oh, we see financial disparities all the time when I explained what happened with my dad collapsing. I said, no, you need to come with us to answer more questions, though. Kept me in handcuffs. I'm smart enough to realize that's not a good sign. So they transfer me all the way down by the airport to where their base is, and um, they start asking me questions like, how did you get here? I'm like, well, came as a kid. I'm under DACA. I can renew it. There's nothing stopping me from renewing it other than finances. And they're like, okay, well, did you cross the border to get here? And I'm like, 
at this point I thought he was trying to be funny so I was just like I looked at him I'm like I flew here like you you can check my DACA paperwork my fingerprints my passport everything is in there to tell you where I came from and so he's like well what are your kids names I said that has no relevancy to my case I'm not gonna answer that well relatives what's your mom's name no relevancy to my case I'm not gonna answer that all right, he goes, well, here's some paperwork we're gonna need you to sign. I said, I'll read it, but I'm not gonna sign it without counsel. Cause this is stuff like, you know, background that I've changed now, it was criminal justice. So I'm smart enough to realize what I need to sign with justice or uh, with counsel or without counsel. And so I was like, I'm not gonna sign any of this. This is stuff you're taught as an immigrant child. Like you be careful who you trust, be careful what you sign. So he goes, well, you're not cooperating. So we're gonna transfer you to Caldwell County. At that time, Caldwell County, and this sticks in my mind, is the same time that Gerald Nelson was being tried for those two missing Wisconsin brothers. He was in that jail the same time I was in that jail. Took a shower right next to that guy. Sat in a cell right next to that guy. And that really hit me because I said, I'm sitting next to somebody who could have possibly murdered people. Am I the same as him? Like, that, that's how they see an immigrant. That's how they see, you know, someone who's going through the system. Like, you're just, you're the same. And <laughs> I get in there and um, come to find out that at that time I got a new caseworker, Jacqueline Pfeiffer. Whitney Neal to this day will tell you she would have never quit her job. She did quit her job. She's a woman of color. She did not feel safe. She would not quit her job if she knew what was gonna happen in my case was gonna happen. She still to this day is my biggest advocate. She was my first caseworker. Um, she testified at my termination of parental rights. I've never seen somebody more shunned by their own previous department than I did her. They turned their heads, they like literally shunned her, told the judge she had no reason to believe her testimony, even though she just worked there a couple months back. Um, you know, in the detention center, I stayed there three weeks. Um, then got to figure out another part of the justice system that was broken because three weeks I was there, apparently don't look like an immigrant, don't sound like an immigrant, so when I told the ICE officer, hey, when am I getting my court date? I read your Know Your Rights book. I know that you have 10 days to give me a court date with or without counsel. He goes, oh, you're an immigrant? I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, um, to his surprise, he's like, well, use the phone here and you'll figure out when you'll have your court date, you'll have it soon. Mind you, I was in there with a Guatemalan girl <laughs> who had been there longer than I was. But because she didn't speak English well enough, she didn't know she had those 10 days to have a bond court date. I got out before she did. And they pulled her out one day to ask her if she wanted to voluntarily depart. And one thing that I know when I talk about my story is I always say that ICE and just the justice system itself, but the way I saw it more is in my situation is ICE really preyed on hopelessness. The longer they kept you in there, the less hopeless, you know, hope you'd have and the more you'd just be like, you know what, just send me back. At this point, no one's coming to get me. No one's here for me. No one's gonna help me. Just send me back. And that's what they tried with her. You know, they kept her there for, I think, I believe she was there six weeks before I even arrived. And then pulled her out and said, hey, do you wanna just go back? on your own, to which when she came back, I looked at her, I told her to look at her papers. I speak a little bit of Spanish because my son is half Mexican. And I said, look, you don't have to voluntarily depart. You can get counsel. I gave her the contacts for air. I gave her the contacts to Jessica Pieter, who did my DACA paperwork while I was in that detention center and got my DACA approved. So then that goes to say, how do you have somebody in jail who just needed to renew their paperwork. There was nothing wrong with their paperwork, they just needed to renew it. They renewed it while incarcerated, basically. And you know, for her to just not understand the system and for them to take advantage of that kind of told me exactly how they work. And then for me to get out and figure out what happened to Crescencio and the way that they just dealt with his situation and how many immigrants they've deported without even telling their families, even though that's something they're supposed to do, so that family can either bring a suitcase, give the person a little bit of like clothes or money to be able to go back. It's just, it's dumbfounding to me <laughs> because this is stuff I watched on the news. I saw happen to other people. Never in a million years did I ever think I would be where I'm at today. 
never in a million years would you have asked me like, hey, do you think this would have happened to you? Do you think you would have almost gotten deported? I would have been like, no, I'm on DACA, what do you mean? There's no way, like, I don't even see how that can happen. Um, but that's what I do, why I do now, because for me, the only hope that I have to hold on as far as like my daughter goes is my promise to her. I'll keep fighting for you. I fought, you know, I had full custody of her because I fought her full custody for her against her dad who was in a completely different state, didn't really care about her, and I won that. So I told her I'll fight for her this time. Don't want to say I didn't win that, but I'm going to still keep fighting no matter how long it takes because I know at some point she has to be able to see or, you know, I don't want to do anything that's going to put then me and Roman have him lose a mom. I'm just not going to repeat the same patterns. But it's going to be one of those situations where I just keep going and in the meantime help other people realize what it is because obviously they haven't stopped doing the same thing. They're doing it to a, a mom right now. Um, and if it wasn't for the story in the Kansas City Star, she wouldn't have known where to go to get help and to look for somebody to help her because they gave her back her 16-year-old kid and kept another kid and told her there's no rhyme or reason and she has that in writing. The email that I was talking about for Heather Kendall, it was um, basically criticizing my cousin's home assessment saying something to do with a marriage that my cousin didn't disclose which has nothing or no relevancy to do with placing with kinship. And at the bottom she said, I just have a general question. I would like to know who brought Maria here from, to the United States. Which for me, that helped me go, aha, okay, that makes sense as to why I ended up in Immigration Detention Center. I don't know why you're asking who brought me to the United States or what relevancy that has to be, you know, being a mother, but it connects the dots for me. I mean, I, I, I thought I was going crazy. A lot of people hear my story and they're like, and I've seen it when, you know, it was posted in the Kansas City Star. A lot of people read the story and go, well, there has to be more to that. She, 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 she maybe did something more to that. And I'm like, no, my skeletons are all there. They try to expose as much as they can of you. I've done my dirt. I've made my mistakes. I am literally past the point of being ashamed to where I know that people may mis make mistakes. It's about learning from them. But at the end of the day, you don't deserve to be treated less than because you made a mistake. You don't deserve to go through what the justice system puts you through because you made a mistake or you were less than another person. Because I'm pretty sure these same people, Heather Kendall has you know, custody of her grandchild. I did my research on her and in their family, they do things differently, but in their professional work, they don't mind taking away someone's kid and creating trauma when they're supposed to be stopping and protecting people from more trauma. That's not something you think about. You don't think about the justice system creating more trauma when you think family court, because it has to do with children. You don't think people bringing prejudice into family court when it has to do with children. So for me at this point, that's why I got involved with AIR. Um, help immigrants, help family, people going through the family court system. Um, try to bring awareness to it because these stories that you hear and you see in the paper a lot of people will say yeah there has to be more or disbelieve it or just put it off as another story and not do anything about it um, so hopefully me speaking on it kind of helps bring more awareness because I will happily put myself out there if it helps people realize what's going on that they're not seeing in the media but yeah Um, we might not have as much time for the final reflection questions, but I'll try to give a little space um, for people to share a few thoughts because it's, uh, it's a big story, right? I know it always is a lot, but everything's all there. Um, wanted to make a few, if anyone didn't understand some of the things that she mentioned, you know, they took a black woman's child and gave it to a white family. The white mother was the one crying that she thought she was being done injustice. You know, um, when ICE, when they called ICE on her, besides probably they're hoping that they would deport her, she was, um, if we didn't get her bonded out by the time her family contacted AIR, she could, that could have made her like be not physically present for her next um, hearing related to child custody at the time. Like they were trying, that was all intentional, that why they did all that, so yeah. Yeah, so it's very evil, um, and that's, 
that county court, Clay County Family Court, if you ever look them up, they have notoriously bad reviews. It's not a secret to people who've gone to that court that they do this stuff all the time, but this is a small county court that no one pays attention to. So, um, I'm actually, I might, um, so if you just want to, if anyone, I can maybe give a space for a few comments if you, anyone wants to share thoughts on that, and then hearing that historical reality, this is what we are, this is Kansas City, this isn't some injustice over in Guatemala, this is injustice here. Your thoughts on what you heard, and what do you think it means to reflect on this historical reality, and what would it take to change things like this in our area? Any thoughts? She just touched on saying one more thing that um, you made a mistake. I just don't, I'm not, I just don't want to be certain things that are going to happen. You know, uh, the punishment and the persecution was not equal to that mistake by far. You repaid that mistake, and the mistake is nothing compared to what you had to go through. We all make mistakes. Like you said, we've all made worse ones. Probably, or will. And, and while you have the microphone, what do you think it takes to change this reality here? Anything, anything you think? It, I guess education, but it, it's so long, it's been like this for so long, I, I don't know, I, I don't know. You tell me and I, you know, I don't know. Maybe a space for, I see two hands. I think if you can give a quick comment, then I think we have to wrap up for just time-wise. But yeah. I feel like for me, it starts with awareness. Like I was completely unaware of all of that. And that's awful. And I realized that it, it sounds like that ended up in the news in some way. But like that, that is a thing that should be emblazoned on the sky. Like everybody should know that this is a reality. Thing that happens here that needs to be called attention to frequently, constantly, all the time. And that's, I mean, that's not, that should not be on the weight of the people who are experiencing that. That should be on the shoulders of people who have the ability to amplify that voice. And I, I see your hand raised, maybe we'd be less comment for the minute. Um, yeah, you just briefly mentioned uh, sort of the root causes of what led to this. Lack of childcare, housing insecurity, and these are things that um, I know as a group that we've talked about. And so, like in our advocacy work, how we can um, do more, like <laughs> contact your representatives, whatever group you're a part of, but um, all of these root causes for why, why this is happening, why people are suffering, um, and then the goal of reunification. Like, that is always the best outcome, or the goal, and um, how we can uh, advocate for things like that to address those root causes. Thank you. I think, uh, um, I think we have to wrap up for time, but you know, we're still here if you want to ask Samantha more questions or me questions. Um, if you're looking to do more, you know, always local organizing, advocacy accompaniment, particular plug, Raisa and I are really trying to find more people in the area who want to learn how to do accompaniment a lot. We're looking for those people because um, we need a, a new team in the area. So if you're interested in any of that, you might pick our brain about it. That's all I got. So.